Oh yes, hello humans, welcome back. My guest today is Kuhn Smets, who is a behavioural economist. Now, the last few episodes with behavioural economists including Rory Sutherland and Richard Shotton are two of the most highly played episodes of all time, so I've got quite high hopes for this episode today. However, we're not just talking about behavioural economics, behavioural economics, we are talking about time and principally how we spend our time and how we relate it to money. Think about the language that I'm using, spending time. We talk about it as if it is a currency, but the difference is that time is going to be spent no matter how we choose to spend it. So what does that mean? What are the implications for how we should spend our days and how should we give up our time for money? How should we exchange the brief minutes that we have on this earth for a value of currency, which allows us to spend some of those minutes doing other things? And where's the inflection point? I really enjoyed this episode. Kuhn is a very insightful and interesting guy with some great examples, including one from the Estonian Police Service. I bet you didn't think that you'd be learning about that today, but you are. Uh, In other news, upcoming episodes, I've already mentioned it, but Kamal Ravikant, Naval's brother, is coming on to talk about his new book, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. I've also got Michaela Peterson, Jordan Peterson's daughter, lined up. James Altucher, who else? Charlotte Fox Webber, head of psychotherapy at the School of Life. Um, There is an awful lot. And before I go, if you are thinking about making the most of your time in 2020, my advice would be to consider going sober for a period and focusing on your personal development. And the best way to do that is with the six-month sober, 28-day, 90-day, or six-month challenge. Head to sixmonthsober.com. That's the number six, monthsober.com slash podcast. And you'll be able to find out all of the information about my new course. Hope you enjoy it. And now... It's time for the wise and wonderful Kuhn Smets. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm joined by Kuhn Smets, who I've been fighting to pronounce that name, but I think I've managed to nail it. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, uh, Chris. Um, you did it uh, proud. I think I've heard numerous uh, strange mispronunciations, uh, mispronunciations of my name, all the way from Keen to Cohen to Cohn um, <laughs> and anything in between. So yeah, I think you uh, you passed with flying colors. Fantastic. Well, we've got over the first hurdle. Um, yeah. To the listeners at home, I'm I'm starting to calm down a little bit now. Uh, You might not know, Kuhn, but I was away in Bali, and while I was away, it meant I couldn't record. Um, And you do not know true fear until you have a a twice-a-week podcast publishing schedule and no podcasts left to publish. And that is is where I've been over the last couple of weeks. But uh, very fortunately for the people that are listening, I have this episode with yourself, which I'm sure is going to be fantastic behavioral uh, economics and all sorts of decision making theory that we're going to go into which I can't wait to do also coming up Naval Ravikant's brother uh, Kamal Ravikant talking about uh, love yourself like your life depends on it his brand new book uh, and a bunch of other people that are really really interesting over the next couple of weeks but today we're going to get to talk about some behavioral economics and some uh, classical uh, working strategies for organizations, human behavior, decision-making, and motivation. That's right. That's the kind of stuff I do, yes. <clears throat> I love it. That's I love good. it. So what have you been thinking about recently? We've got the, the world is our oyster. The world of whatever you've been working on is our oyster. Okay. Um, well, one of, the thing, one of the themes I've been thinking of recently is, uh, is time. Um, as, you, as you may know, uh, Economics is about scarce resources. It's about allocate. It's about allocating scarce resources. It's about uh, weighing up uh, costs and benefits. And this is in the the economy as we know it is usually is to do with money or with some kind of uh, equivalent of money, some resource that you need to manage. Um, but of course, another very important scarce resource we all uh, experience is time. Um, we get uh, at every midnight. We get twenty four hours for the next. Uh, the next day, so to speak, and once that's gone, it's gone. 
Um, and of course, then there is another 24 hours. But we can just like we can spend a pound um, or a euro or a dollar or any other currency only once. So we can only spend a minute or an hour or a second once. And we, if we spend it on one thing, we can't spend it on another. <clears throat> and so our, our general use of time follows similar patterns uh, to the way we use money in the sense that we are, we are confronted with the fact that we don't have unlimited amounts of it. And so we need to be careful in uh, how we use it up. Um, and I think that that is a, a fascinating topic for me because in many, particularly also behavioral economics experiments and eco economics experiments, you get people uh, in a lab, you give them some tokens, you give them a little bit of money, Sometimes you see people go to um, developing countries, to India, uh, for instance, where uh, amounts in dollar go much further. So you can really intervene in people's lives um, on the scale of magnitude that is like comparable to um, a month's wages, for instance, and still be affordable for research. But the problem is with whatever experiments you do with, with um, tokens on money is that it's usually in much smaller quantities than really impact on us in real life. And so my thinking is that if we looked more at how we could uh, we use time, where we all have the same amount of time, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, you get 24 hours a day. Um, it's not because you're rich, you get 36 hours a day. <laughs> we all have exactly the same amount of time. And I think how we would respond to um, having to weigh up gaining or losing time might reveal um, uh, things or clarify things that perhaps are unclear or ambiguous when you work with, um, you give people 10 pounds or 10 dollars and you make them bet on something or you make them um, pay for something. It, it, it doesn't work the same way, I think. And I think there is some, uh, some mileage to be had uh, out of uh, using time in, in research uh, on economics and on behavioral economics and on human behavior. Well, time and money are intrinsically linked, aren't they? Uh, they are. Uh, as you know, the, the old adage goes that uh, time is money. Um, but is it really that equivalent? Is time really always money? And I think if you think about it, um, not every minute is, has got the same worth to you and to me or to anybody else. Um, if you, if you um, are... Uh, in the middle of something that's really important, then your time will be much more valuable than if you're just lazing about on the, on the settee watching The Simpsons. Um, and so I think um, you see it as well in, uh, in overtime, for instance. Uh, people demand to be paid more when they go over a certain limit uh, in terms of working for, uh, for, an employee, uh, for an employer, for a boss. So the, the concept itself of being paid 50% more or double time for overtime people are being paid more for working in the weekend, reflects immediately that a time doesn't have a, an intrinsic, stable, unique value. And I think that in itself is, a, is an interesting and important um, observation that affects the way we behave and we handle and we manage our time. Absolutely. There's a, a short blog post I remember reading quite a while ago that was talking about how, as a child, you'd happily give up your day for a dollar. And as an old man, you'd happily give up your fortune for a minute. Yes, very true. And I think it's, it's quite kind of extreme. As a child, of course, you have no idea of the um, uh, the, the finiteness of life. Uh, you're I don't know, five years old, eight years old. <clears throat> Remember uh, when when school broke up uh, at the end of the, of the spring, early summer. You had in Belgium. We we had two full months of, uh, of holiday, uh, all of July and August. Well, the 1st of July, it's like you can't even see as far as the <laughs> 31st of August. So it was like an, an unlimited amount of holiday. Obviously, by the time mid-August came and then need to go and buy out, I don't know, new books and pencils and everything else. Well, school is starting again. So you, you get a sense of time. But yes, you have no idea of the finiteness. Whereas if you're an old person, uh, then yes, you're, you're counting down and you know, well, um, maybe, I mean, my dad is 92. Wow, um, so that, he's, is a, he's, that is a testament to some good genetics that you've got there. Um, well, I hope I, I inherited uh, his. I didn't inherit his uh, his hair genes, and it says he's he's quite bald, and I still have <laughs> you got most brilliant, of my hair. Brilliant for the so listeners at home. It's a fantastic head of hair. Yeah, it's a it's a good good bargain. 
but um, but yeah, he's 92. He's still in good health. But of course, he knows that he's, he's unlikely to live another 20 years or maybe another 10 years or maybe five years. So you're really looking at time in a very different way. That said, it's interesting that we, we sort of go, go down this particular rabbit hole. He lives on his own um, and uh, he hasn't got much to do. Most of his friends and his uh, his relatives, uh, except for his children and so on, but uh, his, his sort of siblings and peers and all that, they've all died. So there's very few people left of his generation. And so he's he lost purpose a little bit. And so he's got lots of time and doesn't really quite know what to do with it. Um, he loves gardening and all that, but obviously it being winter, um, it's not a good time to uh, spend too much time in the garden. So he struggles to fill his days with uh, with something. So I think if you look at time as something that you would uh, you would analyze in terms of willingness to pay or willingness to accept, he would be willing to pay for something to do mm. rather than having to be paid to do something um, in a sense. But yes, I think these are all examples of how we we look at time with different different eyes, depending on how old we are, depending on what, what day in the week it is, depending on what time of day it is, depending whether we're on holiday or not, all of that matters and makes us look at time differently. Same at work as well. At work, basically what we do, we, we give our employer an amount of time and we get money in return. And somehow we, we tend to view that time as sunk. We've, we've sold it, so it's now our employers in a sense. So we are less concerned with wasting our time. And we're certainly less concerned with wasting other people's time. Um, I, I did exercise once with a client of mine um, where we had a, a workshop with about 50 people or so joining. And uh, one of the things we had to look at was sort of budgets and how much money was being spent. And I made them do the exercise of what's this workshop costing? And I even revealed my fee so they could take that into account. Um, and then they looked, okay, well, the hire of the venue and the meal and this and that. What they didn't take into account at first was their own time. When you get 50 people earning, what, between, say, 60,000 and 120,000 euros a year, when you get these th th that amount of people together for two days, that is a huge amount of money or time equivalent of money that you devote into something. So... But we don't really think about it in those terms. We don't, we think the time, we, we're at work, so now it's work time. We don't really worry about what we do with that time, whether we are using it well, whether we're using other people's time well. And that's why you get so many complaints about um, meetings being a waste of time and wall-to-wall -wall meetings and all day and looking back and say, well, I have no idea what I've done today, but it's not very much. Yeah, I suppose. So I think time, time, time really is a fascinating topic that is, I, I think, understudied um, and under under researched. I've had a couple of conversations. The listeners may be familiar with Laura Vanderkam's episode, who's a time management expert. That was more from the productivity side. Uh, Nair Eyal as well, also to do with task prioritization. Um, mm -hmm. You know, <clears throat> as a a sympathy card that I'll throw out to some of the people that will be listening, many of whom will be knowledge workers. I sympathize wholeheartedly with the fact that your days are messy and you haven't got a clue what you did with them. Um, and when you look back at your day and you think, how did I spend my time? You know, we even mm -hmm. use, we even use that language. Mm -hmm. Linguistically, we're talking about it like it's money. How did I spend yep. my time yep. today? Yep. This allocated yep. number of units of, uh, temporal, mm -hmm. uh, tokens how did i decide yeah. to spend my yes. time today and you know i uh I, I i feel for you because it is as you say you've got i went into a meeting then i sat down i had a coffee i did a this you know and it it just fritters away but yeah you you bring up in a couple of your uh recent blog posts talking about opportunity cost mm -hmm. uh, and obviously how that relates to well, I tell you what. Why don't you why don't you explain to the listeners what opportunity cost is? Define? Yeah, opportunity cost is really is is what you what you do not do, what you cannot do when you do something else. Um, so, uh, to give a simple example, uh, take a taxi driver. You you take a taxi somewhere and you ask the guy to wait for twenty minutes, um, and then because you're going to do something, and then you come out again, and you still want the taxi to be there waiting for you to take you back home or something. So he's not going to say 
it's not going to do that for free. To the taxi driver, the 20 minutes he's standing there is 20 minutes he could not be carrying somebody else, another paying customer. So he's going to have to charge you enough to compensate that. And that's the opportunity cost. So he, the cost to him is not sitting there because he could be um, looking at his Facebook account or reading a paper or uh, just looking out a window or having a sleep. But that's neither here nor there. He could be working as well. And that's how we will measure uh, the cost of sitting there for 20 minutes. So that is what opportunity cost is. And that applies uh, to time as well as to, to money, of course. It also applies to money. If you spend money on a meal, then that money is, you cannot use that money for something else. So there is an opportunity cost expressed in what else you could buy with the money that you spend on, uh, on going out for a meal. Let's try and dig down into the nuance of the difference between opportunity cost for money and for time, because I think this is really mm-hmm. fascinating. You can't not spend time. Is that a mm-hmm. fair absolutely. statement to make? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But time you goes can by. not spend money. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You can still you can say I'm not going to spend it. I keep it for something else. You can't do that with time, or not not easily. At least in the same way, you can't bank uh, time. Uh, maybe if you if you play um, uh, television quizzes, then sometimes you can bank uh, you can bank money and time. But yep. in practice, yes, a time a, a second. The last second, the second I just gone is gone. Um, we cannot reuse this at all. Um, of course, you can say I'm going to bring certain activities forward and do them now, and that is a good way of of managing time over a longer period of of time, as it were. When you say, well, for instance, what people do when they travel, um, they they do something useful while while they're traveling or while they're waiting, and so they can make time that would otherwise be wasted, as in time spent without anything tangible, anything uh, meaningful uh, getting gotten in return, you can change that. And you can say, well, I may be waiting for the, the plane, maybe 30 minutes delayed, but actually I can start writing my report. And so you actually make good use of your time. Um, but it requires an, a degree of awareness and deliberation to do that. And we are not, we don't always do that. And also, we we are worse on the other, on the other hand. On the other hand, as well, we we waste time as well. We we are not always consciously using our time in the best possible way. I want to get you to elaborate on awareness and deliberation in a second. But I'm thinking as you're talking through that, I'm hoping that some of the people that are listening might be in a situation like that. They might be in this sort of little pending waiting room of hell in between one thing that they got to do and another thing they got to do and this thing would have sucked and maybe me mm-hmm. and you chris and kona making this uh this afternoon or this little waiting thing a little bit easier maybe we're in their ears right now you've got the headphones mm-hmm. in listening away perhaps that's the way that they're doing it so if that is the case i hope that we are uh i hope that we're making your, your day a little bit better um but yeah let's let's talk mm-hmm. about um uh, what was it that you said? Deliberation and... Yes, awareness. 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 Yeah. Awareness and deliberation. Yes. <clears throat> I think it's there. the parallels with money still go uh, a long way here as well. I think we often spend money a little impulsively. We don't really... I mean, we, we are not what, what economists used to call, and some still do, homo economicus, the sort of rational, <laughs> uh, maximizing self-interested individual. Um, so, in, in other words, if you spend a tenner on, on, I don't know, some some gadget or or a sandwich or and, and a, a drink or something, you're not considering what what else could I spend this tenner on? Can I just bring to mind everything else I could possibly spend this tenner on, and and then sort of rank them and say, well, the very best way I can spend this is this, not the sandwich and this drink. So I'm not going to buy this. I'll buy something cheaper. We don't do that. We we sometimes spend money totally impulsively, but we also have sort of um, preset limits. We think, oh, well, for, for a tenner, I'm not going to spend half an hour um, cogitating about where else could I spend this even better than, than here. Um, but we, we don't always weigh up the opportunity cost of, of spending money. Um, if you go on holiday, it means you can't buy a new car, um, for instance. That's the kind of thing that some people are aware of and other people are not aware of. Um, and so the same applies to, to time, in a sense. If you, uh, to give you an example from when I was little, um, I was maybe 12, 13 years old, and uh, 
this is the this was a time when self-service petrol stations started popping up. Before that, it was all full service. So you drove up and the guy in the uniform came along and sort of opened your filler flap and, and filled, up, filled up your tank with petrol. And then you could start doing it yourself. <clears throat> and these petrol stations gave a discount. And of course, some gave a little discount, others gave a big discount. And I remember my dad, and we, we hadn't had a car for a long time. We, we went, we drove like 20 minutes to get some discount of I don't know, one franc a litre or something, not, not particularly. And I realised even then that there was no calculation being done. So there was no awareness of how much time, let alone the distance driven, but how much time are we spending to drive, I don't know, 10 miles, 15 miles to get petals that is just a little bit cheaper. And I think we, we often do not think about that. And we think about it even less when it's about time. We, we don't really think about how much time something takes. We, we think we need to go to a meeting. That meeting is like two and a half hours drive away. So we, we just say, well, there's some traveling time. We, that's just part of the equation. We don't, especially because time is not even as tangible as money. There is salience. Time is not salient in the same way. You just take it as a given that, okay, I'll have to, to drive for two and a half hours and, and get there. When we're stuck in traffic, we don't really calculate how much time we waste stuck in traffic. I mean, I, I try to avoid driving as much as I can. But when, I, when occasionally I have to take the car and I have to drive during rush hour, and I see these people and I'm all sitting there and sort of bumper to bumper. And for me, it's just once. And so I, I say, well, yeah, I had no choice. I really had to do this. There's no other way. <laughs> so I rationalize it. But I then think of these other people sitting left of me and right to me and in front of, or behind me. And they experience this every day. Do they have they ever worked out what this is costing them in time? How much time this is this is wasted for them? Multiplied by five days a week. The cumulative 30, loads. 35, the... 35, 35 weeks a year. Oh. So we, we we don't think about it. And that's that's what I meant by by awareness. And I think by being deliberate is once you're aware of the, the the time you spend, your you can sort of account for time more easily. Then you can begin to be deliberate about what you do. For instance, you you mentioned um, where people might be listening to this podcast. Um, I I don't particularly like driving, but I see driving as something a, a great opportunity to listen to podcasts. Um, I sometimes listen to the radio, um, but most of the time I accumulate lots of podcasts. And then when I need to drive, and I often drive from here to the continent, so these are long trips, that means I can listen back to back to several episodes of uh, Freakonomics uh, or of your podcast or of uh, um, Econ Talk or um, you name it. I mean, there's, there's a whole raft of things um, I tend to listen to. And I think to me, that is like good management in the way, in the same way that you use your, your manage your money well. Good money management, this is good time management. Time management is not just about diary management. It's about being aware of where there is a sort of a, a, um, a downtime, a time that is otherwise not very well spent. Because as you, as you mentioned earlier, we can't bottle up time. We, it just goes by. And so we either use it or we lose it. And that awareness can attune you better to use it better. There is a, a concept in behavioral economics called mental accounting. I don't know whether you've heard of it. Uh, maybe some of your earlier behavioral economics guests may have mentioned it, but I'll, I'll quickly, um, I'll briefly um, explain it. Mental accounting is like having multiple virtual bank accounts, and you have one account for the rent, and one account for, for the, the bills, and one account for uh, going out for a meal, and one account for food and, and clothing or whatever. So you, you cut it up. It's basically, it's all the same money because money is, as I say, is fungible. You, a dollar is a dollar. Whatever you spend it on, it's, it's exactly the same dollar. But by dividing it up into um, virtual pots or accounts, you can manage it better. You can have a, a savings account where you save up for Christmas, or for, uh, for the holiday. And basically it's there. It's got, it's earmarked. There's a label on it. And it means that you're not really supposed to take money out of that for something else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, there is, there's an anecdote. I think it, it's, uh, I forget, I forget who it were. One of them is Dustin Hoffman, Hoffman, and the other one is, 
I forget, two actors who used to live together in, in Hollywood uh, when they were young and uh, in Bikunis. And, uh, and one of them goes back home and, and uh, um, wants to borrow some money because they've run out of money to, for food or something. And they, have, they actually literally have jars on, on the kitchen uh, counter. Um, and there is money for something else in another jar, but they are unwilling to take the money from that jar to pay for whatever it is they, they need to pay. So that is mental accounting. <clears throat> and we can do the same thing with our own time. We can dedicate time to a certain activity and not use it for something else. All too often, we begin a task and we just carry on. And we, we keep on going. It's like throwing good money after bad because it may not be the best use of our time at a particular moment. Um, and so if we're deliberate about how we're going to be using our time and say, right, I'm going to be working on this for this amount of time and then I'm going to be doing something else that is also important at that moment in time, it's that kind of deliberateness that I was alluding to earlier on. I understand the listeners will be familiar with Parkinson's law as well, mm -hmm. which is yep. work expands to fill yep. the time given for it. It's yep. one of the reasons that time boxing your tasks throughout the day is mm -hmm. uh, an important way because <clears throat> everyone will be familiar from when they were at school of, well, if you're like me, you might be familiar uh, of leaving your assignment until the last minute and, mm -hmm. and handing it in. You've actually got some students of yours uh, submitting assignments ready for midnight yes. tonight. So I guess you'll be, Suffering with the 11.59 p.m. submission deadlines and all that sort yep. of stuff. There are only a few that have asked for an extension. Uh, well, I mean, they're, they're just leaving it until 11.58, aren't they? And then they can ask for one. But, yeah, <clears throat> I, I, I totally understand. One, mm. one of the um, examples that you used in one of your blog posts I thought was hilarious and fascinating. Can we talk about the Estonian police speeding fines, please? Oh, yes. Yes, that's a fantastic idea, I think. <clears throat> um, the Estonian police in uh, a, a bit early, a few months ago, I think, tried out on a particular piece of, of roads um, an alternative way of uh, penalising people who were speeding. Um, in most uh, countries, um, when you get caught speeding, you get a ticket, and in some uh, situations, the fine can be quite um, extensive, depending on how, by how much you exceed the speed limit. But here in Finland, they came, they came up with a different idea. Um, and so they stopped people speeding and they gave them a choice between paying, and I think, <clears throat> for, for a sort of an, an average um, uh, uh, excessive speed, the fine would be something like 400 euros, so it's like a good 350 pounds. Um, or they could wait for an hour, just stay there for an hour, and then they could, be, they could go again. They didn't have to pay anything, um, but they just had to wait by the roadside for an hour. Um, about half of the, the people they stopped opted to wait, about half didn't. So you can imagine uh, from that how much these people valued their time um, because effectively they paid 400 euros for an hour. I don't think even, I think there are very few people who get paid that amount of money. So stopping by and saving 400 pounds for some people that was uh, that was not enough, uh, so to speak. So they 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 went off, but the others uh, did stay. Now I I sort of mused on that a little bit because I think if you look at some of some common behavioural economics principles, one of them uh, which comes from an acronym uh, that was put forward by the people of the Behavioural Insights team here in uh, the UK, the, the former Nudge Unit, and they have a, a sort of a simple, very clear framework for behavioural interventions, uh, going by the name of EAST, the acronym stands for EASY, um, attractive, social, and uh, timely. So any intervention should score highly on those four things. So it should make life easier. It should be um, appealing, so people would want to do it. It should be social, other people do it. It should be timely. An intervention that is done at the moment that it, it matters has more effect than an intervention that is happening at some unrelated time. And when you think about it, when you get fined, well, even worse. So you drive along, you get flashed. You get you see a flash in your rear view mirror. Shit, um, I've been caught. Okay, so you forget about it for you, you drive a bit more slowly for for a little while, and then you forget about it. And then a fortnight later, the um, uh, the, the 
you get the note that you uh, you got caught and you got a little sort of payment slip there uh, you need to pay what 100 pounds or something it's, oh, bloody 100 pounds but the connection between the behavior that incurred the fine and the fine itself is really very very loose at that point it's such a long time ago that you will you don't make the connection so in this particular case with the finnish police the connection is immediate these people most of the time will have been speeding because they were late they they left late this is another another aspect of poor time management it's leaving things too late so they try to make up for lost time by speeding and get to the destination on time and then they get stopped and they have to wait for an hour so all the benefit they would have had is gone so they made the effort to try and get there in time by breaking the speed limit and yet they don't get there on time so this is a kind of reinforcing mechanism applied at the right time uh, that might I don't know. There was, they didn't really properly research it, but I think this is one of the things that I would uh, I would like to see researched uh, more uh, to see whether the effectiveness in terms of um, recurring speeding of this kind of penalty would be superior to the conventional uh, penalty of just basically fining people. It makes me think about when. Um when people buy things on a credit card as well, or when people mm-hmm. use contactless. There was yep. a there was a study, I think Rory Sutherland cites it, mm-hmm. people walking out of a supermarket and they're being asked, how much do you think your receipt oh, yeah. is worth? Yeah. Um, yeah. And the people that paid cash were within, a, a, you know, 10%, 15%. People yeah. that paid chip and pin were sort of within 30. And people that paid contactless, like they might as well have just guessed. They might as well have guessed what the person next to them's receipt was. And it's that detachment, isn't it? It's not only the timely detachment, but also the detachment from something that's sufficiently visceral in our sensations to actually make us feel like we were were experiencing what is happening. Absolutely. And I think because at the point people are being called speeding, time is very important to them. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be speeding. So at that time, being delayed even further is extra painful and is therefore more likely to have an effect than something that happens two weeks later when they're forgotten perhaps even where they were when they uh, they got caught so so yeah i think i think that's uh, it's an interesting experiment that i think um, merits further investigation so to speak i agree um you also had a look at um the relative judgments for people who were offering to do charity work about whether or not they were going to spend money to contribute to a particular cause uh, or whether they were going to spend their time. And this gets on to a point as well that I'd love to move on to, uh, which is talking about um, outsourcing tasks to other people based on your own value for your time. So let's let's get into that. Can you tell us about that yeah. study? Yeah, yes, yes. That's, uh, that's an interesting study. Um, I forget who, who it was done by. Um, it's somebody at the University of Cardiff, um, and they looked at um, what how people value people donating to charity, um, depending on whether they volunteer or whether they uh, donate money. And they normalized it so that the the value of the donation was similar to the value of a week's work, so to speak. So it, it was entirely equivalent. And what they found is that in the eyes in the eyes of others the donation of time was uh, seen as much more valuable. That's um, 70%, so, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. So that's that, that's interesting in itself. So whereas the if you, if you take the old time is money um, equivalence, that is clearly not true because people feel that people who um, volunteer and donate their time are more praiseworthy than, uh, than people who simply dip in their pocket and give some money. Why do you think that but the is? interesting... Um, well, I, I can I can theorize, and my theory um, is that we we all experience time in a much more similar way than we experience money. Um, money, our experience to money is very much dependent on our point of reference, um, and therefore how how wealthy we are. So, uh, to, to an economist, a dollar is a dollar, but to somebody who's a millionaire a dollar will be worth less than to a homeless person who has no money at all but time time is much more um equal for for multiple people and so we are 
it's easier for us to put ourselves in the position of somebody who gives up a whole week of their time, of their personal time to do something for somebody else, than for somebody to give up, I don't know, $1,000. Um, yeah, I, I wonder. Because, I wonder how much of that, as well, is uh, effortful signalling about the fact that I know I can tell you people who have donated chunks of money yeah. to mm-hmm. to charity, but I don't know many people that have donated a week. Yes, exactly. Well, that is because we only have fifty two weeks in a year. We have basically there is no limited amount of money we can have. Now, of course, we we will not give give away half our wealth. Uh, very few people do that. I mean, let's, let's Unless you're Bill Gates. leave out leave Warren, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates out of the equation. <laughs> um, but generally, the amount of money we give is relatively modest compared to our total wealth. Even though it may, in absolute figures, be quite substantial, it's, it's rarely something that will make a difference to our lifestyle. Very few people donate um, amounts that make a difference to how they will live their life after they've made the donation. But we all have limited, limited time, so we can we find it much easier to imagine what it's like to give up our week. We have a limited uh, amount of holidays, so there's a four or five weeks of holiday a year. So that's 20 or 25% of your holiday time you're giving up to do something for somebody else. Bloody hell, that is, that's quite significant. Now, there is definitely um, the likelihood that some of that is signaling um, with donations of money we can we can donate um anonymously and some people do um not many the 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 proportion of anonymous donations is very very small um so people really want others to be able to see that they they gave a certain amount of money because it gives them a warm feeling but it also gives them a bit of status in the eyes of others but you can't donate time uh, anonymously so there uh, that is, it, it's pretty obvious that you're donating the time. And so this is something where you can, even if you're a modest, humble kind of person, you can still say and say, oh, look, see what I, what I did here. I sort of <laughs> I went over there for a whole week. Yeah. And just going back to the study, what's interesting is that even if the, uh, the participants to the study were told that if they had given money to this um, charity, the charity could have bought much more time with that money from local people than the one week that they were giving up and the and the equivalent amount of money they gave up or, the, or, or holiday time, and still third party, the th- other people, viewed the donation of time as more praiseworthy than the donation of money. So the utility of giving time may be less, but the status it gets you is still more. And so... so Time and, and I think there, there are some interesting implications to that, both um, in our private lives and at work. I think, I think we should be more aware and make other people aware of the value of our time at work. So when we when people come and, and ask for our time, or when when we go and ask somebody else for some of their time, we should be more appreciative appreciative of that time and understand. <coughs> that this is a precious, scarce resource they are making available to us. <clears throat> and so likewise, in, in the, um, the other way around. And it's the same thing um, at home. We At home, we sometimes treat the time of other people as if it's as if it has no value. Will you just go and do this? Uh, can you just go to the post office or this or that? And, okay, what's the opportunity cost for the person um, concerned? Um, is that the best they could be doing with the time? I mean, it's 20 minutes walk either way to the post office. Uh, I could do could be doing something else. So why are you asking me this? Because you forgot yesterday to go to the post office. So it's very easy for you to forget if you can then ask me today to go to the post office. So I think, again, more awareness of the value of time can lead to not, 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 not only a better use of time, but also better relationships. Because... If I come to waste your time, if for whatever reason I have some power over you, um, and I can I can instruct you to go to the post office for me because I forgot to post the letter or to send this package off yesterday, then be resentment. You will think, well, bloody hell, I could be doing I could be doing something interesting, something nice, something useful for me. But now I need to go to the post office and waste twenty five minutes, half an hour or so to uh, to make up for some um, 
something you forgot to do yesterday. Mm. Isn't, the, isn't so, it interesting that with that, you've, we've identified that as being something that people might be quite cognizant of at home. Yeah. But if you were at work in a mm-hmm. job and your boss said, hey, I forgot to take, I forgot to do this to take this to the post office. Do you fancy going? Mm-hmm. You might actually think, oh, get in. I got 40 minutes off work. I get to go and have a, I get to go and have a walk. Despite the fact that your time yep. at work could also be spent doing something. True. But as I said in the beginning, one of the, one of the things that we tend to do when we're at work is we, we treat it as sunk time in a sense. Mm-hmm. We've sold our time to our boss already. So if our boss wants to use that time, because it's, it's his or her time now. Mm-hmm. So if they think that time is best spent by me, by sending me to the post office, who cares? I'm, I'm happy either way. I suppose this is exactly where it's literally the tip of the spear of where the inefficiencies in wasting time come from within a business, don't they? That people yep. are like, it's eight o'clock, I'm here. It's five o'clock, I'm gone. Yep. Wh- whatever we do during that time. And it takes a very, it either takes a very particular type of mindset or um, a special sort of remuneration package um, for people to start to bring that in because you are right some people hate meetings they don't want to spend their time naval ravikant famously he he doesn't do meetings i don't do meetings and you're like well you know there's a lot of businesses and he's on the board of all of these like angel investment companies and stuff like how do you not do meetings and that's because that is how much he values not only his time but the time of everyone that's around him or there's other companies that i know that um their meeting rooms are deskless and seatless so they are simply a room in which everybody can stand and mm-hmm. it, it just re- it totally reduces yep. down, it increases the effortful friction of someone wanting to call a meeting. It's like, okay, cool, you can yep. call a meeting, but everyone's, everyone's got to stand and everyone's got to hold their laptop like a, like a waiter in front of them while, yep. while they're here. Um, True. So, I mean, it is, it is so interesting, especially for me as someone who's never worked um, in a typical salaried job. That's never been my industry. I've always worked for myself. Um, but I know that that's non-typical. And, you know, I, I really do hope that some of the people that are listening can start to, if you are in a, a more typical sort of salaried job, you can start to assess your time while you are at work and think, well, hang on, where, where, where can I make my experience either more productive or more enjoyable for, for me or whatever it might be? Well, yes, yeah, absolutely, and I think your your, your parallel is quite uh, quite interesting. I think if you're self-employed, then you are you are really the owner of both your money and your time, and you will treat them with more respect, I think, than the time that you spend at work because you've already sold it; it's not yours anymore. I think the comparison is with imagine that you're you go on a business trip and you get some cash from work. You get, I don't know, 150 pounds to spend on, on a hotel and a meal or whatever. Will you be worried about how much you spend? Probably not. You you can't keep anything. So you can't keep the balance. You have to give back. You have to have receipts for a certain amount and the balance you need to give back, but you can spend up to 150 pounds. So you're not going to be too concerned about how you spend that money. Well, I think it's very much the same with the time you spend at work it's you've given it to your employer so if if the if for whatever reason you need to go and sit in meetings five hours in a day that's what you're going to be doing um now of course it's not true for everybody not to 100 mm-hmm. of the time but too much of the time we we really treat that time as if it's it has no no particular value to us we just do whatever uh, whatever comes along and we we don't um, we're not deliberate enough with it. I, I understand. I think that's such a, a brilliant example. The people that, you know, do have a company card that are, are listening will know that it's, if you got £150 to spend, it's £149, 50 pence that goes on the mm-hmm. steak and you've bought a milkshake that you don't even want to have and this, that and the other. Um, I think you're right. There's there's something probably a little bit more... Um, worrying or a little bit more sort of malicious going on it feels to me a lot when i speak to people some people who have these sorts of roles there's almost an adversarial relationship between the employer and the employee or the employee and the employer that it's like 
they will drag their feet slash spend the money slash do whatever they can as much as possible sometimes especially in a job perhaps that you might be not too enamored by um and you know i i um i don't really know either from an employer or an employee's standpoint if there's not a passion to sort of make the most of every minute as ben bergeron would say um i don't know what the solution would be for that i don't know if there is well, one yeah yeah, I think I think it's 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 not normally malice. I think it's just um, no appreciation for something that has no value. Um, I mean, even in in social policy, um, there is there, a case can be made um, for making people pay for much of the services they get because once you pay for something, you you attribute value to it and you start caring for it more. So, I'm not even remotely suggesting that at work we should pay our, our colleagues for their time. Um, although, as a principle, it's probably not bad. And I think there have been experiments even at Google where there were sort of there was a virtual Google dollar being used that you could use to, to buy a colleague's time. Mm. But uh, I think another concept that I, I use in my work as well is the, is, is the economics concept of externalities, where uh, this is where a transaction between two parties involves a third party, or actually it doesn't involve them, but the third party bears the consequences of it. So, um, I mean, a good example of externalities in, in, in society is pollution. So you um, take plastic pollution, for instance. Uh, the plastic that is uh, now filling up our uh, rivers and oceans. So you go down to Tesco's or Sainsbury's and uh, you get some plastic bags for you because you can't be bothered to take your own bags. You get handful of free bags you, you get home you uh you unload them and then you just throw them away and they blow out of your waste bin on the outside and they blow into the local river and they find their way to the sea so the seas are being polluted whereas the transaction was just between you and sainsbury so you got some some free bags and so somebody else is suffering the consequences likewise polluting industries that pollute the air or the water and so on the same can happen within organizations where, I mean, to give you an example, um, where finance tells procurement, you need to squeeze down our suppliers. We want to pay less because we have price erosion. We need to compensate for that. So we're going to pay less for our raw materials next year than this year. So they go and negotiate <clears throat> and they get a better price. What they don't at that moment realize is that the supplier is saying, right, okay, if we are getting less money for our product, we're not going to give as much support anymore. So if, if there is a problem with our, our supplies, daring us up, we're not going to be on their doorstep within half an hour. We might give them some telephone support, but um, obviously it's not part of the it's not part of the official written contract. It was mm -hmm. part of the unwritten total agreement. And so the people somewhere else in the organization who need the help of the supplier will suddenly find that they don't get the help anymore. So that's an externality. The finance and procurement were happy because finance said, you must shave 5% of the bill of materials and procurement shaved off 6%. That says, look at us, we did really well. And then somebody else is suffering the consequences. Operations and logistics are yeah. fucked, yeah. Yes, <laughs> those kind of things, precisely. So, but I think there is so many situations at work where what we do on our own or what we do with another a colleague affects third parties. And we don't know in what way and it may well may, it may well waste their time but if we don't know we'll happily waste the time because we don't pay for it we it's not even visible so that's why I, I, I again I keep on hammering on this notion of awareness we, we need to be aware of the consequences of what we do on other people including of their time and it may not it may I mean we could do it this way or that way it doesn't make much difference to us but if we did this way, it's going to waste somebody's time, maybe half an hour, half a day. If we do it that way, it won't waste any time at all. But if we don't know, we can't do the right thing. And this is because within an organization, you don't have a market mechanism to show the expense of something uh, that is a, is a specific burden to a, to a colleague, which is a, if you see what I mean. Absolutely. Um, so I've got I've got a, a question that I want to finish on. But before we get onto that, is there anything else? Do you want to bookend the discussion on time, or are you are you happy with everything we've covered so far? Well, I think 
maybe one final thing, and I wrote about it recently, is uh, is deadlines. The the use of deadlines, and particularly self imposed deadlines. Um, we um, we sometimes set deadlines. Where yeah, I mean, we must get this done by then, and it it can be a, a very good mechanism for making um, the limited amount of time we have salient, and we have a countdown clock mentally, or we can have a real countdown clock, and. So we, okay, this much time left and we can plan and we know that we, as we get closer, we really need to get it done. Um, whether that's at work or whether it's at home, um, we can do this. But we should be careful not to be too dogmatic about using deadlines like this because there's always a trade-off to be made. And so sometimes time not spent, but because a deadline is basically saying no further time spent beyond this moment in time. And if you if you don't go beyond that, then presumably there is some kind of value of finishing whatever you have um, by then. I mean, you you uh, you gave the example of, uh, of my students and their uh, final uh, assignment for this uh, this course. So they need to submit it by midnight uh, tonight. It's midnight central time, so they've got another um, another 11 hours, so they've got, got a little while to go. But <clears throat> so some of them have asked for an extension and they they got it because they, they were in time um, if they ask for one now then they won't get it they will get penalized um, but so they need to think about should I submit my assignment on time and meet the deadline or should I submit it late get a penalty but have a better assignment mm-hmm. and I think that's the kind of trade-off that we don't always make we can become obsessed by a deadline and not really work out what the true cost would be of exceeding that deadline. Or meeting the deadline as well, I suppose. Or, 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 well, b- both. Uh, yeah. Both, indeed. So you we can, need to look you can set, set a self-imposed deadline which forces you to make a suboptimal decision, one that potentially, yes. given only a small increase of the deadline, would have increased yeah. the quality of the decision by a significant margin. Correct, correct. And I think, I mean, to give, to give another sort of practical example, um, you need to catch your train. Um, and it's really quite important you, you get that train, but how important is it? Are you, going, are you going to be leaving the house without checking that you've actually closed the windows and the doors? Because, yeah, I really need to get the train. Or are you going to say, well, I'd rather check the house and I'll take the next train. Okay, there's going to be some cost involved with that, but at least I know my house will be secure and the iron will be unplugged and I'll have uh, sort of switch off the, the gas stove and, and everything so my house is not burning down. So, when you when you put it so extreme, then clearly nobody's going to say, I'm going to rush out of the house, leave windows and doors open and the iron um, on the ironing board mm-hmm. um, because I need to catch my train. Nobody's going to do that. But if it's not that extreme, we don't always think about it, about what it is we would gain by catching the train and meeting our deadline uh, or what we would lose by not meeting that deadline or what we would gain in terms of the benefit of our house being secure or the equivalent. So I think deadlines can be can be useful, but we should be careful not to treat them as something that then begins to dictate us. I think we need to um, be willing to look at compromising either way and what the cost and the benefit of, of uh, going either side would be. It's interesting that I, I love thinking about where the rubber meets the road with these sorts of discussions. Exactly what would you, would you be prepared to have one window half open? Would you be prepared mm-hmm. to have one window yeah. fully open, but it's an upstairs window? Or would you be yeah. da, 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 like, so we do, <clears throat> we, we always do this and it's ruined. We used to have a big section on the Propane Fitness podcast, which I was a guest on before I started this one. Uh, and we used to have a big section called Would You Rather? And it was mm-hmm. Would You Rather mm-hmm. submitted by listeners. And there would always be something which had a value that was negotiable and we would find a value that someone would accept and then the it ruined it completely ruined the segment and we got rid of it because we just kept playing the same game which was we would pick the value someone would accept and then take it mm-hmm. down by a unit and then take it down by mm-hmm. a unit and then take it down by yeah. it was oh so you do it for 50 grand okay so would you do it for 49999 <laughs> would you do it for yeah. 49 and you just go oh well like you just I, I don't know i don't know exactly where but where the rubber meets the road with those sorts of discussions i think is is really, really interesting. And you spoke about, i tell you what, before I ask the, the question, I've been really excited to ask you. Um, you mentioned that one of the ways that people can insulate slash protect themselves um, from this is through planning. 
Mm-hmm. Can you just uh, can you just explain how you think planning sort of ties into the deadline and sacrifice sort of? Well, metrics? I think yeah, yes, yes, I can. Um, I think uh, I I treat planning somewhat um, fuzzily. Uh, I'd, I'd say I'm I'm not the person who's got. A, I mean, sometimes when I work with people, I see they open their Outlook diary and it's got all these nice colored boxes. I don't have that many boxes, um, but I do it. I do it mentally in in a sense. So I think about. Um, what I need to do, I think about when I'm roughly going to be doing it. To me, it's about this awareness and, and being deliberate about the time. Um, so for me, that is planning. And I I think what's important also is what is my purpose? Um, if, I'm, if I'm going to finish my blog post for Friday, then that's what's going to be my main focus. But it, it doesn't mean that I'm going to be doing this until midnight and until a drop. No. This is where the mental accounting comes in. I'm aware that I need to take a break. I'm going to have a cup of tea. I'm going to maybe watch something on television and then I'll carry on working on it. So it's, it, it, it really is, I think there's probably a parallel with mindfulness as well. There's a lot of time mindfulness uh, that is involved here. Being conscious of time, being conscious of the fact that it's valuable and that you need to use it well, but also that you, I mean, interestingly, I just tweeted a story uh, earlier today about the value of doing nothing. So I actually, I sometimes literally do nothing. And I I think it's very valuable doing nothing. So there is, I, I don't look at my phone, don't look at anything, don't even think about anything, just basically float. Can be very useful. And so, Making time for that is a case of being aware of the need and being deliberate about creating that time. It's not necessarily I'm going to be doing nothing between 11.44 <laughs> and 12.05 um, tomorrow lunchtime, but it's about um, being basically yeah, being in control of, of your time. To me, that is what, what planning is. If, if you need your diary to do that, then fine. But you don't necessarily need a diary. It's the sense of being in control of what you do when. Yeah, the tool doesn't really matter, but the deliberateness does. It's yes. I, I can't remember. I read the quote earlier on today, so I'm kicking myself for not being able to remember it. But uh, many of the problems of man are due to the fact that he can't sit alone with himself in a room for half an hour. Uh, yes. Um, and, you know, it sounds like you are. Also, interestingly, if my meditation coach, Brian, is listening, um, he will know that my particular pathway of meditation at the moment is do nothing meditation by Shinzen Young. And that specifically for anybody that's interested um, is what he calls completely taking the hands off the wheel. Um, And it is the practice of no practice. So my meditation on the morning doesn't even have me clearing my mind of thoughts. If thoughts arise, they're allowed to. There's no fixation or suppression. But the only mm-hmm. thing that I do is drop an intention to control. So it's like the, the thought about putting my hands back on the wheel gets, that's the only thing I'm allowed to think about thinking about. And that's mm-hmm. it, which is yeah. doing that, like learning to let go of controlling thoughts, even in a meditative practice, is because med- meditation in itself, in some forms, especially some of the ones that I've been doing is still about we're bringing the focus back to the breath. We're bringing the focus mm-hmm. back to the somatic sensations in the body or the self-talk or the my, the mental imagery or whatever it might be. And um, yeah, the, the power of literally doing nothing um, is, is an interesting one. I think it was really, really good to go through that, but I have a final uh, question for you, which I asked uh, Richard Shotton, I'm going to ask you the same mm-hmm. thing as well. So you're stranded on a desert island, stranded yeah. on a desert island on your own, and you're only allowed to have three mental models with you. You can take three mental models onto the island with you. So they can be either the most novel or the most interesting. They can be a bias, heuristic, whatever it is that you, you want. But you've got to choose three, and you've got to take them with you. Which three are you going to choose? I'm going to be on my own there. Yep. Mm. Oh, well, I'll tell you what, you can you can imagine that there might be other people there as well, because that'll probably broaden the uh broaden it. But you've got to choose three. You've got to choose a favorite three. Mm. 
I'm not quite sure what you mean by by mental model. Though. So, so any 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 bias, any heuristic. So you could have sunk cost fallacy, opportunity cost. You could have the pratfall effect. You could have anchoring. You could have um, uh, self serving bias. Well, I think one thing I would definitely take with me is cost benefit analysis. Okay, um, that's the there's a it's. It's the way you make deliberate decisions. Um, so it's, it's sort of considering what the the costs and the benefits are of the the multiple options that are in front of you. Mm-hmm. I think that would serve me well, even if I'm totally on my own on a, on a desert island. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I would also take is um, optimism bias, um, because I think life can get a bit depressing if you're not optimistic. Um, Optimism might be, well, God knows, maybe a ship might appear on the horizon and take me away from this island. Or mm-hmm. um, I might discover um, important things that help me make my life uh, more comfortable on, on the island. Uh, what would be the third one that would serve me well? Well, um, maybe, I don't know whether you treat as a as a... A mental model, but I would take mindfulness. I I find um, even when I'm driving occasionally, uh, and it's 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 probably the right out of doing nothing, but just sort of taking in the sight, taking in the landscape, taking in the way the trees look. Uh, maybe there's a bit of frost on the trees, and and being really conscious of that. I think that's also something that would serve me well on uh, on a desert island. That is. The ability to experience my environment to the full, my, being mindful in that way, even if I have nothing else, if I haven't got any any of my accoutrements that make my life uh, interesting and pleasant these days, if I could be mindful in whatever the nature would be on my uh, desert island, um, I think that would um, would serve me well. I think it would stop you from getting bored as well. The uh... The resolution sure. that you're looking at some, you know, if you're on this small desert island, you're seeing the same trees every day. You need to be able to look at them with, with mm-hmm. optimism. You need to be able yep. to uh, to be able to see them freshly. There's a couple of um, a couple of mental models that that uh, come to mind. So George McGill, who I did a mental models podcast with, there's Hanlon's razor and Occam's razor, and he made mm-hmm. he made McGill's razor, uh, and McGill's razor was when uh, offered two choices choose the one which suggests, which offers the most luck or adventure. And that actually, interestingly, the luck Mm -hmm. or adventure side might be how you ended up on the desert island. You might have thought, Mm -hmm. I'm going to take, I mean, this this sounds like a great adventure. And now you're shipwrecked and now you're stranded on a desert island. Well, the question is, will it take you off the island again? Ah, uh, yeah, exactly. A lucky create, get, get Wilson, the volleyball on there, strap some bamboo shoots to a, to a raft. Uh, Cohen, today's been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. If the listeners want to find out more, if they want to see some of your work, where should they head? Well, I should I should probably head to my Medium site. I mean, I, I publish both on WordPress. There, my address is uh, Confucius. And I'll I'll spell that. It's K O E N, as in my first name. Confucius, uh, as in my uh, illustrious ancestor. Um, <laughs> Confucius dot uh, net. Um, or on Medium, uh, I'm Medium slash um, at Confucius on Medium. You can always follow me on Twitter as well. I'm a prolific um, Twitterer. Um, mm-hmm. Tweets not not least my own stories, but also other interesting stuff to do with human behavior that I discover on the net, left, right, and center. I couldn't agree more. Massive, massive uh, appreciation for you for coming on. And you're you're publishing you're publishing weekly at the moment on on uh, your every week, yeah. That's a that's yes. a serious schedule. A piece every week, yes, that's right, and I try to stick to it uh, to the point. I'm actually I, I publish in in English and Dutch as well, so it's published on a Dutch uh, Belgian Belgian Dutch language news website. So I translate it usually in the early hours of Friday morning. Oh wow! <laughs> to- yeah, I know. Um, I know that. I know that feeling of completing my show notes a couple of hours. There's been a few, a few interesting times because of the publishing. The time that these episodes go live is six a.m. in the UK. 
Um, and there's been mm-hmm. a couple of times where I've been away in Bali, which is 13 hours ahead, or I've been in Boston, which is eight hours, oh, yeah. like six hours behind. And I'm thinking like, yes. shit, like I've got half an hour to get this episode up because it's actually, it's only 1am here, but it's 6am at home and blah, blah. Well, same for me, even though it's a self-imposed deadline, because uh, nobody tells me to uh, to publish by 10 o'clock on a Friday morning. Yeah. But um, it, it helps. I, I'm... I'm totally convinced if I didn't set myself that deadline, I would long have given up posting a post every week. And that discipline, I think it's a very good uh, discipline to think as well. I mean, writing is the best way to learn to think better. I couldn't agree more. And I think as well that what we've both got is a level of accountability. You know, there will be people Mm -hmm. that that are waiting for your blog post. And if the blog post doesn't go up, maybe no one will actually say something, but you know, they'll probably think it. They'll be like, hang on a second, where's Kuhn's? article from today and that's that uh social social fear that social pressure it's a it's enough of a motivation to keep us both going each week i suppose it is even if it's totally imagined and is uh, actually nobody's reading my pieces uh, it still it still works yeah kun thank you so much for your time everything that we've spoken about today will be linked in the show notes below including uh, the medium page for yourself and your twitter you know what to do if you enjoyed this episode feel free to comment below like share and subscribe i would really appreciate it but for now kuhn thank you so much chris thanks very much it's been uh, very very enjoyable thank you All